Support for this podcast is provided by Cosmic, a Portland-based agency consisting of technologists, storytellers, and strategists who help nonprofits and B Corps quickly grow revenue and impact. Start growing your mission-driven organization with Cosmic at AmplifyPDX.com. Support for this podcast is also provided by the PDX Executive Assembly, a membership of leaders from Portland companies, led by executives from the Trailblazers, Adidas, Yakima, and more, the Assembly's curated cohorts of executives serve to accelerate leadership development and build a meaningful network of peers, free from press and sales solicitation. Join now at pdxexecutiveassembly.com. From That Cast Creative, I'm Dan Bruton, and this is the PDX Executive Podcast a show where I talk with inspiring leaders who are shaping the future of Portland, Oregon. Every week, I sit down with business executives, startup founders, and community leaders to dive into their career journey and get insights into the impactful work they're doing in our slice of the great Pacific Northwest. Hey everyone, welcome back to the PDX Executive Podcast. Summer is uh, in full bloom here in Portland and in Oregon. I've been getting out. I always like to say I like to disappear a little bit during the summer like a lot of Oregonians um, do, but I like to pop up and talk to people that are doing great things in the community. And of course, if you've been listening to this show, you know I'm a huge wine nerd and love wine. So I'm excited to have Jessica Mazeko, who's one of the founders of AFI Wine out here in the Willamette Valley. Hey, Jessica, thanks for joining. Thanks, Dan. Thanks for having me. So I like to get right into it. I mean, for the people that, you know, maybe don't know about your your winery or um, love to hear the story, if you don't mind just sharing that with us. Absolutely. So AFI means and daughter, and it's named that because my father and I co-founded the winery together 19 years ago. We did that because my dad, who was a software engineer by day, had a hobby and a passion for making wine out of our small backyard vineyard and making wine in our garage when I was growing up. And I always helped him, which is translation for I had to clean things a lot. And (laughs) (laughs) after doing that for 20 years, my dad called me at my job in biotechnology in San Francisco and said, hey, I'm thinking that we might want to try doing this as a professional winery. And I said, that's a great idea, dad. You should go do that. And he said, no, it meant for us to do it together. So we co-founded the winery in 2003. We started extremely small. We started literally by each taking $10,000 and saying, how much wine could we possibly make in year wine in year one by mm. keeping our costs as low as possible and putting everything back into the business? And so we grew very, very slowly. I, you know, my background was in biotechnology, not in wine. Wine was never on my radar. My pathway in was entirely out of family loyalty. So we, everything I learned about winemaking was from my dad. We made wine together for 14 years until he died very unexpectedly. So now I'm the sole owner and winemaker making wines that are inspired by his legacy and my daughter's future. Well, thanks for sharing that, Jessica. I want to back up a little bit because one thing I do love talking about, I mean, we'll, we'll get more into wine is just transitions. And so you kind of said, Hey, my dad called me. I came up. It's like, we all know it's not that easy. You had a career, (laughs) you were living in the Bay area. I I know you had this kind of connection with your father who you grew up kind of making wine, but walk us through. I mean, do you get the call? I'm sure it wasn't like, let's go do it right away. Or maybe it was, but I would love to just tell us a little bit of like, I'm going to give up a career to, to go do this with my family. 
that in an industry that there's, you know, a lot going on here and there's competition. So I would love just to learn more about that. Absolutely. Well, I think um, mine was an extremely slow transition. So mm. when my dad um, called me and it became clear that he wanted to do this together, that sounded really fun as a side hustle or as a side yeah. passion project. <laughs> um, and that's yeah. really how it started. We started very small. So I would say that the barrier to start was very low. It required a little bit of money, a little bit of time, but it wasn't a full-time effort for me um, for the first few years. We did end up growing more quickly than we anticipated. And so it took five years before I quit the security of my day job. And the reason why I did quit is that we had just had a feature article written about us in Wine Spectator. Um, we had had a lot of good breaks going our way, but I was so busy flying around the country launching biotech drugs that I didn't have um, the time or the focus to really capitalize on those good things that were happening. And finally, I realized, wait, if we don't capitalize on these things, they're going to pass us by. Mm. So I finally had the courage to resign from my job and move up to Oregon from the Bay Area. But I kept the security of consulting projects in biotech for a long time. And I would say if I were to reflect on the learning for longer than I should have, because I think that when I did finally quit that security bl blanket and know that I had all of my energy and my reliance for the for my income from this business that I would start to take it much more seriously. And it wasn't until that time that we really started to grow revenue significantly. So that's one lesson that I have. Yeah, that's a great, I mean, I go just personally, I have a lot of projects going on. I talked to the, exactly the same thing to a lot of entrepreneurs about, you know, there's a transition period. And of course, if you have a family, it makes it more difficult, but it's just that opportunity cost of your energy uh, really makes a difference. So I, I yeah. appreciate you kind of walking through that. So tell us a little bit about kind of the business now. I mean, let's get into it. What, what are your, what are the wines you make? Where do you source your grapes? I would love to, to learn about that. Absolutely. So we're, uh, we're, quite small. We're 2,500 cases trying to grow to 3,500 cases in the next year or two. We started making Pinot Noir only, but we've added into that Viognier, Rosé, more recently, sparkling wine, Chardonnay, and I'm adding Gamay this year. Mm. So we're really focused on sort of what classically the Pacific Northwest and the Willamette Valley in particular have excelled in strengths. We have a small estate vineyard that my dad planted on our family property in the Chehalem Mountains in the mid-80s. I'm in the process of significantly expanding that right now. And also, we work with six other vineyards um, that really reflect what we think are the best of the variety that the Northern Willamette Valley can exhibit. Oh, that's great. No, and I, I, I think, no, that's pretty pretty common that you, a lot of vineyards up here source other grapes and you work together and they're all in the Willamette Valley. Are they anywhere from other parts of the state? No, all or? northern Willamette Valley. Okay, great. And I've been learning that, I mean, obviously Chardonnay has been made here, but that is really maybe the next, obviously we're known for Pinot Noir, but a lot of, a lot of winemakers told me like, we're going to get really known for Chardonnay. So what what's the deal with that? Why is that way? And maybe I'm wrong? I don't know. What's your thought? No, I totally agree with that. I think that that, if you look at sort of the kind of markers for quality, um, as 
things that are as simple as wine spectator and wine review scores, we're, we're out punching our, over our weight um, in Chardonnay. So I think in Chardonnay, sparkling wine, those are two fast growing categories in general. And the Willamette Valley share of that is really outperforming. Mm, okay, cool. That's, that's good to know. Um, and, you know, just breaking through, you mentioned you had like kind of that wine spectator uh, moment, which... Uh, you know, I, I get wine spectator and, you know, uh, it's funny how that still is a driver, but just in the world of new world of marketing and branding, like what are some other things you found to be successful to stand out? I mean, I think staying true to our story. When we started the winery, there were about 150 wineries in Oregon, and there are now 954, I believe, at last count. So to say that there has been exponential growth is quite an understatement. And I think that what makes any one particular brand stand out is just being very true, knowing exactly what your story is and staying very true and aligned with that. So for us, our story is about family. It's how we started. It's why we make wine. And it's what we hope accompanies people when they drink our wines. So that is very core to our brand. The other thing that is very core to our brand is Knowing our why and understanding that how we run our business is just as important as why we run it or what inspires us. So for me, I say that we're committed to sustainable winemaking, community, and diversity and equity. And those values have to be tied to our actual practices. And you are a B Corp, is that right? That's right. So we um, got certified as a B Corp earlier this year. And we just found out that we're being recognized as best for the world, which is scoring in the top 5% of B Corps of our size along the measure of community involvement. That's amazing. I mean, we obviously live in a great community for B Corps and I'm learning about organizations here locally that I never would have thought being B Corp and they are, they're like, yeah. You know, from wineries to like, you know, Tillamook, the, the great cheese company. Um, so it's it's cool that there is such a strong community around that here in Portland. And I don't know if that was helpful when you were going through the process because it's pretty rigorous. Yeah, it is a rigorous process. But the reason why I went through it and you're totally right, the the community that we have here in Oregon is outstanding for it. The reason why I did it is that we're so small that I don't have a lot of practices or policies or Mm. codified procedures, but we're in the stage of growth. And I felt that in order to help me grow in a way that is aligned with my values, I thought it was important to have some third-party neutral guidance along that. Now, the guidance Mm. comes not in the form of guidance, but in the form of an evaluation. But even doing that benchmarking helped me think through things. So here's an example. I only have um, three three employees. So I had no, they were asking a question about are, is X, Y, and Z included in your employee handbook? Well, it never really occurred to me to write an employee handbook because we're so small, (laughs) but there's a great point that as we grow, these are the types of processes that we need to put in place. So it was really helpful for me from that perspective. That's interesting. Cause I don't know if I've ever had anybody describe it. I know there's an evaluation, but to, that you looked at it as like, Hey, this is going to help me with my strategy potentially too, or just going through this process. Exactly. So cool. with the yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. So what's kind of next for your, 
for a winery. I know. I love uh, so we're, I as I mentioned, we're in the process of expanding our, um, our estate vineyard. And that's a big deal because my dad planted that in the mid eighties. We're located at a thousand feet. And for a long time, it was just a little test vineyard or a fun project that kept, uh, that wasn't we never planted the rest of the property because a thousand feet was considered too high of an elevation. Um, mm. What's happened since then is two things. One, unfortunately, the climate is warming, and that does mean that a response to climate change in the wine industry means either go higher in elevation, go north, or change your varietals. I'm not really interested in the latter two. So I do think that a thousand feet is going um, to be extremely sustainable in the future. Also, I have a significant um, sparkling wine and rosé program now, and you usually pick those earlier. So even in years like this, where it seems to be a cooler year, I think that it will still be fine for those two projects. So that's one thing. The other is that, you know, all of the vineyards that we work with, we've been with for longer than 10 years. But this year I'm bringing two new vineyards into the mix. So that's a that's a that's a really big deal for us. Um, so we're just trying to grow sustainably. The other thing from a business perspective is that COVID has really thrown kind of a couple of different wrenches into how we, you know, what our overall revenue mix is. Um, so wineries typically sell either direct to consumer or when it's business to business, it must go through distributors uh, in each separate state. So. During COVID, when a lot of restaurants and even retailers were shut down, that distribution um, business really shrunk and direct-to-consumer really grew. Now we're almost seeing a little bit of a whiplash in, in the reverse, which is this extreme demand in the distribution business-to-business -business segment. And so I think it's just a matter of managing that and trying yeah. to uh, remain flexible in that. Yeah, and I know just a little bit about the distribution system with you know wine, just alcohol in general. I mean, it's very complex. Mm -hmm. It's different in each state. There's so I'm assuming those relationships are are very key. But I can understand how like that, like you said, whiplash. Didn't really think about that. How it's coming back. But during the pandemic, did you build up kind of your direct to consumer? kind of side a little yeah. bit or? Yes. Uh -huh. In fact, you know, in many ways, it was um, a great proof to the consumer. So for many years, I've had consumers saying, hey, where can I find my your wines at a store near me in Cleveland? And I would mm. say, well, we're not distributed in Cleveland. However, it can come directly to your door. Oh, no, no, no. I don't want to commit to buying wine to ship. Well, of course, during COVID, we all became used to buying everything and having it delivered mm -hmm. to our door. So it definitely was helpful in allowing consumers to see the value of that. I think that purchasing direct-to-consumer from a winery has several advantages to the consumer, one of which is you get access to the full lineup, not just those high-volume brands that you can put through distribution. And the second is the convenience factor. And so um, that was really helpful for us. And yeah. And how about just Oregon wine in general? I mean, now that it is, what do you say, 900 uh, wineries or, or whatever it is, that's that's crazy to think about. Um, just as a collective, uh, 
I know you're always, always you're pretty close knit. It sounds like the the wine uh, industry here, but you know, frenemies in some ways. So, uh, what what do you think about the future of that? Well, uh, first of all, you know, we here living here near the Willamette Valley, we tend to get a little bit organ focused, but it's important to put into context that. Oregon wine represents only one and a half percent of all the wine produced within the United States. So I think that part of why we've so so we're tiny, but we're mighty mm-hmm. and we're mighty in the sense <laughs> that we, despite producing only one and a half percent of domestic wine, we produce over 20 percent of wine spectator scores over 90. So I'm not saying wine wow. spectator is the ultimate arbiter of quality, but it can be used as an indicator. Also, um, Oregon wine is growing at three times the growth rate of wine sales overall. And that is due wow. to the tremendous impact emphasis on quality over the years. So what's next, I think, is remaining very true to the quality uh, focus. Also, as these sort of mighty things have happened, uh, we have welcomed quite a bit of attention and M&A activity from Mm -hmm. outside the state. So I think what will be really key is growing in sustainable ways that still emphasize quality and also still emphasize the overall organ character of camaraderie and collaboration, as you just mentioned. Yeah. The, I mean, I was going to actually ask you about the kind of the acquisitions that are going here for some from bigger wine companies internationally, obviously some from California, not only buying labels, but buying land. So... Uh, is that still going on? I mean, you might have, I mean, you don't have to just name names or anything, but is that still rumblings of just, Hey, people coming out here f- from bigger wineries? Yeah. Yeah. I think such? that there have been several, um, sorry, if you can hear my dog barking in the background. Yeah, hey, of course, no worries. <laughs> you might hear mine here in a minute. So, <laughs> um, yeah, I think there have been several reasons for an interest from outside entities. One is, like we talked about, that emphasis on quality and starting to see that pay off. The second is the discussion we had about climate change as water concerns, as wildfire concerns, as the the overall warming takes hold, particularly in our neighbors to the south of us in California, Oregon is looking like a much more attractive location. We also see quite a bit of interest from international entities that are interested in the direct-to-consumer base that the United States Mm. affords. Um, So for those reasons, we have seen quite a bit of, and like I said, we're growing at three times the wine overall growth rate, stimulate quite a bit of interest. And I actually think that a lot of that is a great opportunity for us because with that comes a lot more awareness so that we are not one and a half percent, but you could see that growing in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Jessica, thanks for talking. I like to ask one more question of everybody who's in the wine business um, before we go. What, what do you love about wine? I love that wine is both art and science. So given my background in biotechnology, I usually start with a pretty analytical framework. But just like any of us that like drinking wine, once you start tasting it, some of that framework can go out the window. And it is really about um, sharing wine as communal. And it really helps 
build bridges between people and surpass the differences in gender, uh, what you, all kinds of things. And that's what makes the experience special. And that's what makes me happy to bring it to other people. Well, th- uh, thanks, Jessica. Where can people f- find uh, you? I know you have a tasting room, I believe, in Newburgh. So love all that That's information. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So our tasting room is in downtown Newburgh and- on First Street. And you can find us online at afiwines.com, which is E-T-F-I-L-L-E-W-I-N-E-S.com. Thanks again, Jessica, for joining the show. Thanks so much, Dan. Appreciate it. The PDX Executive Podcast is a production of That Cast a Portland, Oregon podcast agency that partners with brands to create custom podcasts. You can learn more at thatcast.com. And please take a moment to subscribe and rate the podcast as well.